0: Welcome back to the Bugs, Blood, and Bones podcast, where today on our off week, actually, we're going to have the second part of that interview with Chris von Schiefewey, a computational epidemiologist working with Ebola and all sorts of other lovely, gruesome, non-insect-like bugs. So strap on in, take a listen, hit that subscribe, and enjoy Epidemiology, Friendship is Magic. the similar diseases say like a, a monkeypox that has that is still out and can be we still see outbreaks from that would those stores of smallpox
1: correct and what is what is even worse is there's been some pretty i would say odd experimentation uh which is that um, Pete Gerling has uh, actually demonstrated that can infect monkeys with smallpox. That's an unusual one, because, as as I said, smallpox is not a zoonotic disease. It's a human disease. Monkeys have their own little pox. Um, All primates have their own pox. A lot of other animals have their own pox virus. It's a massive field. Um, But uh, he basically... uh, engineered, uh, he basically engineered smallpox to be zoonotic. We're not talking about something that takes a lot of, uh, uh, I'm gonna say something that's gonna uh, end me on a watch list one day. I'm pretty sure if I'm not already on one, but uh, we're not talking about some super secret knowledge. We're talking about stuff that's a well-motivated, and ill-intentioned biology <laughs> graduate student could do, and this is not some. This is not something that's a secret. This is something that, you know, if you have a university journal access account, you can actually go and read how to do it. Uh, it, 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 it is. Um, I try not to be too panicky about bioterrorism, because for the time being regular terrorism is just bad enough. But the frightening thing about science is, the good thing about science is that it's so open. And the scary thing about science is that it's so open. Everybody who's uh, done basic lab, lab microbiology, could probably mm-hmm. take a strain of any pathogenic organism and heat it up. That, that's a metaphor we use for uh, make it more, make it more lethal. Anybody who's probably got a graduate or doctoral level knowledge and there's a lot of those people around, even without much experience, uh, could probably take particular immunity genes and put it into a bacterial infection. And hey, Presto, you have uh, something that uh, can do some serious damage. We have recently been very worried about this happening with a particular gene. I'm just not going to name it. I'm not not even going to say what it is. But uh, it's a gene that expresses a protein that makes bacteria... Essentially resistant to a range of antibiotics, with some exceptions, and um, essentially an entire group of the most powerful antibiotics that we use, uh, these bacteria will become immune to, and that can have some devastating consequences. And it take it would take about I don't know. Mm-hmm. A thousand dollars, a lab bench, and an afternoon, to to start an infection with it.
0: And I think I just learned what Stephen King's next book is going to be about.
1: Well, I don't. I. 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 It's, I don't know. I don't know. I. I that's terrifying. <laughs> I really hope nobody writes a book uh, realistic enough to give anybody ideas. You sometimes read research papers, and you think, Oh dear, um, this, some things are. Uh, really, best not. Some things are best get quiet, and uh, it's 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 kind of frightening.
0: In in coming from your perspective, I can definitely see how it would be terrifying. And in my experience, we have when it comes to the, in the justice system, you know, people have an expectation based on fiction, you know, TV shows, books, of what can be done, and it's taken to such an degree that it's illogical. But the people still expect it. I don't see that same sort of expectation on, from your end. People looking at fiction on your side of the of the fence. It's just pure terror. I
1: don't know. Fortunately, in on our end, I think uh, most of the most of the fiction has been going the other way. It's um it's it's been portraying a lot of these diseases as um horrible, nearly unpreventable killers. I, I watched uh, Contagion a couple of years ago, which was relatively accurate in a couple of respects. Uh, although, according to my wife, uh, she'll never watch any movie with a- involving any disease ever again with me because I ruined <laughs> uh, I complained so much about it that, uh, that it's just impossible to bear. So, virus disaster are off-limits in this house. But on the whole, there is um, most of the most of the, the fiction around this is making these things out, if at all possible, to be worse than they actually are. I don't know, as a public health worker, I don't know if we should be grateful for that or not. I don't know whether. it what this will lead to is increased vigilance or just sheer panic. I'm worried that it will swing towards the latter. I'm worried that, um, you know, uh, everybody shows, um, like all, all of these movies show people bleeding out and uh, dying in gruesome ways. And then, um, you know, miraculously the CDC develops a cure and everybody's happy. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know... You never see anybody wash their hands. you never see anybody use uh, use a proper um, change gloves, the change yeah. gloves uh, use the proper masks uh, use uh, the proper p p e that you need uh, i I don't know if um, i don't know if these movies really encourage what I tend to call the preparedness mindset now this word has a bit of a bad rep. Is um it's sometimes associated with people who are prepping for the end of the world which is absolutely not some not what i mean but what i do mean these are scary things and it's probably i'm probably not going to tell my future children uh bedtime stories about Ebola <laughs> uh but uh but i think it's important for people of all ages to understand that there are bad things both mm-hmm. natural and human created and horrible things might happen and this is how you avoid becoming a victim
0: well it's the great paradox of you know the there are people who will ch- relish these sorts of fictions of the most dangerous deadly disease possible, but then ignore the ones that are far more dangerous, the flu, measles, uh, things like that. These things that are are real.
1: Yeah, yeah, a lot of people, they aren't really familiar with most of the diseases that vaccines have made more or less extinct. So the only person I know uh, who has ever had mumps is my wife, Uh, she was vaccinated, but uh, the vaccine apparently failed, or I don't know why, Uh, but she had a breakthrough, uh, bumps infection when she was a child. I work with a lot of people who are physicians in both public and private healthcare systems. I mean, of course, most of them haven't seen smallpox. There's a lot of infections that you just don't see anymore, but what's scarier is that you see lot of things that you thought were going the way of well, the dodo or the smallpox in this case you see them reemerge. and and, and I think that's um, I think that's uh, scary, I think it's uh, it's genuinely scary because it reflects an attitude that here's something that we actually can prevent and we're squandering it we're squandering the ability to prevent it what the hell sort of stupid stuff are we going to do when we face something that we can't prevent? I mean, I don't know.
0: We, we underestimate the importance of culture in, in these things. So the culture of the anti-vax community is what's led, what's led to measles months uh, and whooping cough becoming pandemics again. Uh, and going back to Ebola, you, were, you briefly mentioned funeral practices, my recollection is that part of that the spread of it is because that culture in the area is that the family and community comes in and participates in the in the the death rituals and that's how ebola was transmitted in different communities
1: that's correct there's um there's a there's a great uh, involvement of certain of certain traditional funerary practices and these are of course very very sensitive sensitive issues on one hand you know, these uh, these are part religious, part cultural things. So, uh, mostly they involve washing the body, and uh, then quite often there is at the funeral a physical contact with the body. Now, the good news is that a wide range of uh, a wide range of various organisations. Uh, uh, including Red Cross and Red Crescent World Council of Churches, uh, Characters, World Vision, and among others Islamic Relief, uh, which is quite relevant because a lot of uh, these practices come from the Muslim faith, especially the one about washing the body, have actually worked out what they call a safe and dignified burial protocol for people who have died of Ebola, which does not involve um, a transmission risk. In fact, much of this um, has has come from uh, an institution that I'm very fond of and have at times worked with the Birmingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Their Muslim chaplain has actually written an extremely interesting paper on uh, the Islamic jurisprudence of necessity in this case, and that um, the necessity of avoiding infection and spreading the sickness overrules the necessity of uh, washing the body before burial. Um, that's one end of the story, so to speak. At the same time, you know there is um, there, there is an anthropological edge to it, and I have referred to it before uh, from the perspective of these people, there is something going on. It is often treated as... uh, It it, it looks like a curse from God, you know. Even in uh, Western Judeo-Christian thinking, uh, there still are people, as recently as the HIV epidemic used to call it uh, God's judgment upon the gay community, which is, of course, absolutely um, the most ungodly thing that you can say, at uh, the whole thing.
0: Well, there are still crazy people that think that.
1: Yes, there yes, there are. Fortunately, uh, no. Fortunately, a number of people who are listening to them are diminishing. There are now fringe groups like Westboro Baptist, if I recall correctly, but um, but, but this used to be mainline preaching, and uh, it's all for the better that that that's been done away with. To be quite honest and e- equally so what you have is a community that's uh that's deeply traumatized you have a small village and not a particularly educated one usually because uh most of the educated people are in urban areas they receive a bunch of uh westerners coming in into, there you know in their blue Raquel suits or in their uh, white Tyveks, as almost like aliens. Uh, you know, white dude comes in, uh, doesn't even want to touch me, but is going to tell me how I'm going to deal with my dead grandfather. Well, hell no.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, that's um, that's uh, not necessarily, uh, that's not an illogical that's not an illogical approach to the issue that's not an illogical attitude
0: oh on on top of that we have the the history of colonialism that is probably playing a very significant role in this in the psyche that's correct
1: yes, I think uh, more than the memory of the old colonialism are the insults of what you would call the new colonialism so Westerners still keep screwing over those countries <laughs> where we we still make their children mine coltan in uh, horrible circumstances and then die of uh, you know, uh, heavy metal toxicity we still uh, exploit natural resources uh, and while we are at bats in the bowl and all that we still have occasionally created economic structures that that have uh, that have caused deforestation, which meant humans encroaching on the places where bats normally live, uh, which in turn meant bats, well, not retaliating, but uh, bats uh, int- uh, coming closer to humans and interacting with them. And the result is, of course, transmission of all sorts of bat-borne zoonotic diseases. So um, so on on the whole, if I were an African villager, I would send those guys packing too, which is why I think it's a fantastic idea. I think that if I would have to say what was the one thing that was done really well in the uh, recent West African outbreak, it is that there was a lot of involvement of, um, a lot of involvement of anthropologists who have helped mediate, who have helped. Delegate as many tasks as possible to locals. An interesting aspect of that is, of course, in contact tracing. There are some things that there are some things that people. Well, the the, the big problem with contact tracing, as I said, is that people lie, uh, and mm-hmm. they don't lie because they're bad people. They lie because uh, they're frightened or ashamed or have other issues. And one particular, um. One particular such issue was that several people did not admit that they were in contact with a particular traditional healer because they felt that uh, when they said that to the white doctor the white doctor will think of them as uncivilized barbarians who believe in superstitions and of course, even among uh christian and muslim africans um local healers and sangomas and uh they, they all have different names and different cultures uh they play a significant role uh not necessarily just um uh, some sort of pseudo healing but also um but they do actually offer some sort of um i think it's a form of psychotherapy. Really, they sometimes do. Sometimes rituals can be therapeutic, right? Mm-hmm. We have them in our our society. So, what is quite important uh, to understand is that that issue was only resolved once, um, once they had the chance to talk to a local person who was uh, recruited to help with contact tracing, and they said, "Yeah, we." And went to this, this traditional healer. And uh, that was when it be- became evident that something they didn't dare admit to the white man, uh, they were more likely to admit to, quote, one of their own, end quote. And mm-hmm. uh, that, I think, highlights... Uh, it highlights the risk and it highlights an opportunity. The risk is that there's a way in which we are being seen, which is partly our fault, partly our grandparents' fault, and partly instinctive uh, distrust towards people from people who look so very different from us. I, I think that's hardwired into the human psyche, unfortunately. But it also shows the, opportunity, uh, the great opportunity of, by involving locals, we can get better information, we can communicate information better. The World Health Organization has long relied on uh, teaching, uh, teaching locals uh, to become health educators and in the field of HIV prevention this has worked marvelously. It's too early to tell about um, Ebola prevention Mm -hmm. and uh, the consequences of that Uh, but uh, again this is something that is uh, being leveraged in order to um in order to get the message across better and anything that gets the message across is a success for us
0: do you think we'll reach a point where people will have forgotten how horrible ebola or any of the other hemorrhagic fevers are uh, that that we may at some point you know find cures or vaccines for that are wholly effective do you think we'll reach a point where we will have forgotten about the danger of those and that we'll be just in this spiraling circle like we have for measles.
1: Well, there's a part of me that definitely wouldn't mind uh, living in that world for a couple of years. Not long term, but for a couple of years, I really wouldn't mind a world that doesn't have hemorrhagic fevers in it. They are horrific, horrific, horrific things. Ebola is sometimes... A, Ebola is the one that has the worst reputation Marburg is the one that um, that uh, I think Marburg is uh, unfairly maligned. Uh, Marburg is a horrible disease as well, but. It does not liquefy your body and your brain, and uh, it doesn't turn you into a bag of goo that then bursts. Uh, that that that's. Um, if you want a really horrible one, it's Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever. CCHF is a horrible disease. There's uh, uh, there's a recent outbreak of it as well, and uh, it's bad. <laughs> yeah. And then there are hemorrhagic variants of a lot of other uh, infections. There's uh, dengue, which is basically um, a South American flu, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, Normally, normally. In a small number of people, it turns into a a viral hemorrhagic fever. Um, Heaven knows why. There's uh, all all sorts of weird weird viruses like uh, Machupo. There's um, Q fever, which sometimes uh, can have hemorrhagic fever. Um, features. But anyway, back to your questions. On one hand, because of course Ebola uh, and all the filoviral ones, uh, hemorrhagic fevers, are zoonotic, we will always have to have, uh, we'll always have to vaccinate the new generation. So we will have to keep vaccinating. Even when there's zero cases for X years, we can't stop. I There's a... It's a little photo on my desk it's actually quite a famous one it's uh the leaders of the smallpox eradication looking at a magazine uh, it's got the um it's World health uh and on the front it got it's got um it says smallpox is dead that that was um uh that was in nineteen eighty when smallpox was finally eradicated. And on the back of the magazine you can see you can see the... Uh, I, I believe it's the uh, it's a statue of the Mayan goddess or god uh, uh, who was claimed to cause smallpox. Smallpox was so bad it had a deity devoted to it. No other disease can claim that. It had its own deity. That's how freaking bad it was. And It's kind of a beautiful image, and I I, I keep it around as sort of this is what is possible. I keep it around because it reminds us that beautiful human achievements like that are possible. We can go from something that was so horrific that uh, it had its own evil god to it being defeated. But at the same time, I do also know realistically that that we can't do that unless uh, uh, unless we do something with the reservoir hosts as well you know the options of getting rid of something like Ebola look like either we keep vaccinating everybody all the time even when there's zero cases for years we will have to keep vaccinating and vaccinating and vaccinating alternatively we will have to start start vaccinating the vectors the reservoir hosts or we will have to kill reservoir hosts off. And considering that we aren't even sure why bats aren't reservoir hosts and we're not sure how to kill all of them and find all of them, that's not necessarily... I don't think there's ever going to be a world without hemorrhagic fevers, unfortunately. It's just one of those things that I guess um, I guess what I sometimes say is that uh, that uh, it's part of the code. It's part of how, huma- um, how This whole existence, this whole universe works. Part of that involves the existence of these horrible things. Why? I don't know. I'm the kind of guy who likes to believe that things are a little more than just random coincidence. And if there's anything I have learned from studying horrible diseases, perhaps some of the most feared and most fearsome ones, it's to hug my wife every night, closer than ever, before falling asleep. To care for the ones that are around me. To do today what has to be done. Because we as a species are not guaranteed a tomorrow. Every day for us as a, as a species is, and for us as individuals as well, is a gift and we've got an obligation to make sure that we'll have another day and an obligation to make the most of the ones we have. They really do focus your mind on what's there and what you have and all the things that you have. Realistically, I'm fairly sure I'm not going to die of Ebola. I fortunately uh, do not have to deal with it physically anymore. That's um, uh, the little computational tag uh, before my name is that kind of implies that I don't have to go into a hot lab uh, and deal with BSL-4 agents like, of course, all phylobeirae are BSL-4 agents, which means you have to wear the full spacesuit ensemble before dealing with it. Accidents still happen there it's risky stuff i'm fortunate that i don't have to deal with that i just get to work with my numbers uh from the safety of uh some nice comfy office in front of a computer and we mm-hmm. have aircon uh that's one of the that's one of the best things compared to field work there's air conditioning oh uh, the where i although where i currently live summers can get pretty hot not as hot as in africa but it uh, can get pretty hot and pretty dry but when you think about these things, when you think about about the fact that most of these most of the people who have passed away from these horrific diseases, they all had lives, they all had families, they all had they all had people, and this thing just punches holes into that fabric. It, just, it doesn't just kill the person, it punches holes into the fabric of humanity. And I try not to be one of those people in the public health field who have a lot of emotions about uh, what they do, but I can't help being a little angry about <laughs> uh, about it, so I really wouldn't mind if uh, the lot was just gone.
0: It's important to remember that everybody has a story. And it's like we can watch the news or read a case report and and have this all this data boiled down to hopefully objective information, but that doesn't tell you the story that that led to that. Doesn't tell you about that person. And it is important, I think as you're saying, to remember that there is something behind the numbers that we're studying and we're looking at.
1: I was always I was always quite interested In these stories, I've um, I've read a book a couple of years ago called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And that's about the lady, she was a poor African-American lady who died, I believe, in the 50s from cervical cancer. If I, again, if I remember correctly, I'm not quite sure. But uh, the cells from uh, one of the biopsies that they've taken were then cultured by uh, Professor Gee, who who was one of the leaders in cell culturing. And they became what is called HeLa, which is a very widely used cell line. So an immortalized cell line basically is a bunch of human cells that just keep replicating and replicating, as long as they have food, so to speak, they just keep dividing and dividing. That's uh, very useful for biomedical research and She'll never know, but the research that that was conducted using the cells, the cell lines derived from uh, the disease that ultimately took her life, uh, have saved millions. The polio vaccine was cultured in HeLa cells. Um, a lot of drugs have been uh, tested in HeLa cells. In fact, just about all. Uh, it is basically a stock item of modern biotechnology. This one penniless African-American woman who died in absolute agony because she couldn't even afford proper pain relief, she, in her last act, saved millions, and nobody ever compensated her or her family for that. And until uh, Rebecca's clothes book, um, which I refer to... Uh, her accomplishment was largely, or her contribution, so to speak, was largely, you know, un- not remembered. In, in infectious diseases, we have, um, it, 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 it's a it's a bit of a discussion at the moment, or dispute at the moment, whether we uh, should or could name, um, or what we should name strains after. And, you know, it started with um, a disease that broke out in queensland and the queensland cattle industry was a little upset about uh it being associated with a dreadful disease so it was just renamed q fever recently um there's a protein that uh that is responsible for certain antibiotic resistance called ndm1 uh which is short for new delhi metallo beta 1 It makes uh, bacteria, especially Klebsiella pneumoniae, immune to carbapenem antibiotics. Well, a lot of people have protested, uh, mainly uh, people from India have protested about the association of it with uh, New Delhi. So there's a lot of controversy about naming things. But behind all of these things is a story. There is um, the reference strain. Of smallpox that's kept everywhere, is known as the India strain, and it comes from a lady called Rahima Banu. She is, as far as I'm aware, uh, still alive, and uh, she was um, she was born in 1973 in what's today Bangladesh, and she had smallpox in 1975, and survived and what is probably uh, one of the sweetest stories ever, D.A. Henderson, who was one of the leading lights of the smallpox eradication, uh, had the chance to meet Miss Banu, who was one of the last cases of naturally occurring smallpox. There are stories behind all of these. There's um, the 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 best known Ebola uh, strain, Mayenga, is named after nurse who uh who I refer to, Mainga Naseka, who uh died after taking care of person uh, suffering from Ebola without having the right the the right protective equipment and she was just in her twenties. these strain names and these things they there are all human stories behind it. Unfortunately human stories that with a few happy exceptions like Rahima Banu's have ended in tragedy and uh they do they, they do remind us of of the fact that uh so sometimes sometimes what qualifies as a success in our field can look really weird uh sometimes it might just be a computation that works or uh, it, it, it might just be numbers that work out right, or molecules that just snap together in the right way in the simulator. And it's very hard sometimes to come home and uh, explain to somebody why you're so damned enthusiastic about uh, Oh, yay, look, these numbers are smaller than 005! Um, but. I think it's uh, useful to often remember that we're all part of a wider human story, I think. And our role, the one that we chose or were guided to depending on what one believes in, well, our role is to do to do what we can and what we're trained to do and what we have accumulated a particular skill set to to help humans live longer, better and healthier lives.
0: So, in in all the time that you've been doing this sort of work, and I think I might have an idea of where you would, how you might answer this, what, what is for you has stuck in your mind as an experience or uh, a a principle that has continues to influence you uh, as as an epidemiologist, as as a person studying these diseases.
1: I think I would answer it. Uh, I think I would answer it from three different perspectives uh, from the professional perspective um, I think it 's made me even more of an unbearable perfectionist i 've always been a perfectionist when i've um, when I let teams uh, people say that they 've never been ridden as hard as they have when working with me. But but they also say <laughs> they've never learned as as much. So, yeah, of course, it is, it is, uh when I when I run teams, there's reading lists. Uh, there's no pop quizzes, but there are reading lists. There are um, assignments. There are some personal development assignments. Uh, you know, asking them exactly the kind of questions you're asking me. What um, what does what does your work mean to you? Why do you do this? Because it's very important to have people who do what we do for the right reasons, because you're not going to get rich. Uh, If if anybody who wants to be an epidemiologist is listening to this, if you want to go into this (laughs) job for the money, you need to see somebody about your head. Uh, there's none. <laughs> there's, um, I know the CDC is a two, $2 billion dollar bureaucracy, but that doesn't necessarily boil down to a lot of money for people doing it. If you want immediate fulfillment, there's not much of that either. If you're looking for recognition, nope. This is a this is a team sport. This is a team sport, and uh, it's like, imagine as if the Super Bowl would be played by two teams of 10,000 people. Well, that's the kind of attention that you're going to get. You are playing in the Super Bowl, but you're one of, like, the 10,000 people on the field. Actually, one of the two 10,000 people teams. Wow. That's the kind of recognition that you happen to get. And, of course, there's... The usual bitter political rivalries. If you think that uh, if you think that uh, we agree on anything other than humans dying is bad, uh, you're again misguided. That's um, that's probably where the agreement stops. How we best accomplish that? Uh, that there is a lot of legitimate disagreement, and. Um, And I think that's fine. I think that's that's what makes this so interesting. I've become a very interesting bunch of people over time. Epidemiology used to be basically for people who didn't want to actually practice clinical medicine, but liked statistics. Now it's got um, people who come from the computational edge of the story, There are anthropological epidemiologists. There are people who look at social aspects of um, health and disease, uh, especially especially how uh, particular social situations lead to uh, an accumulation of particular disorders. Um, You see that with research into chronic disease uh, in um, disadvantaged urban neighborhoods, for instance. My I guess my professional answer to that is to always try to do one hundred and fifty percent or more, because you never know. You never know, but somebody's life probably somehow indirectly, or maybe directly, is going to depend on it. What I've learned in my growth, as as a person, as a human being, is to it 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 is to be open to as many perspectives on the same problem as possible there is um there's no one right perspective and uh as i have mentioned the anthropological perspective uh, when when that came in uh, there were people who totally disagreed with that uh, just this uh there were people who thought uh, the computational perspective was misguided. You need to be able to get the best out of each of those perspectives and not you know, approach them without prejudice. There are some that are probably going to be worthless. If somebody tells me they have uh, just figured out a way to use chakras and crystals to predict uh, the spread of Marburg virus, I've probably send them to a friend of mine who's a uh, practicing psychiatrist. But other than that, um, you know, you just have to be more open. And I think as a person, it's made me more open to other views and other things. And I guess as an individual and as a human being, I think, and I tend to repeat this a lot, what it taught me is that that? however hard we work on having a tomorrow, and we do need to work hard on that, and we do need to ensure that humanity has a tomorrow. Even if, even if we just win one day, it will give us another day to work hard to win a tomorrow, and so on and so forth. I think it's taught me to appreciate life a lot. Not just my own, but everybody else's life in general. I had my career change, like my career change was largely inspired by a couple of months that I was forced off the field so to speak. Um, I had a a very serious disease uh, similar to lymphoma that meant a couple of months of chemotherapy and I had to take a couple of months out and it gave me a lot of time to think about what I wanted to do. I think that made me want to start to do things uh, where, I could le- where I could legitimately say that in this big project of keeping humanity and humans as individuals alive, I could at the end say that yeah, I was a tiny cog in that big project. On the whole, I think it's also taught me that life can be very fleeting. And uh, people who have planned for the next years can be gone before the day's done. And so, what you have to say, say it now. What you have to do, do it now. I never forget to, and I never, I never miss an opportunity to just hug my wife and tell her I love her because that is one thing that I think that I always feel and always need to make sure that it's said, whatever happens next. So, that is what this taught me. And if this sounds pessimistic, or if this sounds like I'm expecting the end of the world to happen, that's not the case. No, uh, I'm generally quite an optimistic person, and uh, I think we're going to be around for quite long. But seeing the light and the dark puts life into a very interesting, I would say unique perspective. And I feel really blessed that I got a second chance at life. And I got a chance at experiencing life from this perspective.
0: It, it doesn't sound pessimistic to me at all. I think it, it's quite beautiful. And we I think we should do more to remember the fleeting nature that life it can be, you know, you and I have a little bit more of a, I, I don't want to say holistic, but a little bit more maybe up upfront experience with um, the the many ways that a life can end. And I think that that gives us a sense of urgency to appreciate and share the the joys that we have now and to encourage that in others.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I think, um, I think um, this is uh, just um, its an eye-opening experience. It's an eye-opening experience, definitely. And I do know that there's um, its not all the money in the world that would make up for that. I'm pretty sure that, uh, that if I wanted to get filthy rich, I would have done something different in life uh, from the beginning. But I also know that this is what... Um, this is what I think we as human beings, even people who say the opposite, in the end, we all want to do something that matters. We want to matter to somebody mm-hmm. and we what we do, we want it to matter. And I think having found that was an immense blessing and... I'm not saying this is the only thing that matters. Of course, there are, there are a lot of things that are important for sustaining life, um, and 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 it's all a big web. Uh, I call it the web of trust. That uh, you know, you and me are talking on Skype. Uh, there are people who have developed that facilitated millions of conversations, uh, Skype facilitated the conversation where I first heard the voice of the young lady who eventually became my wife. So um, there's that, there's undersea cables that uh, facilitate um, just about everything that happens in the world. There are people who are right now using remote-controlled little ROVs to uh, repair those undersea cables or keep them safe. And it just goes on and on and on and on. There are a lot of things, a lot of ways to do something that matters. And I think it's individual to everybody's skills and abilities and aspirations. Mm -hmm. I'm just happy and lucky that I found mine.
0: Those of us that are lucky enough to find the thing that we love to do and get paid for it, and and you latch on to that. That's that I would agree. If you if you have that lovely happenstance, and you you find and can be paid for what you love to do, you you own that and you enjoy that. Because for every every one of you, there's someone like us, uh, who who like what we do, and then there are others who enjoy, say, working in an office in a cubicle under fluorescent lights, and they relish that and bless them. Because I am not one of them. <laughs>
1: What she said. (laughs) I couldn't agree more. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us here on the podcast. And uh, I I hope to do this again sometime, maybe. We can talk about any number of topics. uh,
1: Yeah, yeah, we've um, talked remarkably little about the truly disgusting features. I know. uh, uh, I I, I feel I have disappointed a little. with all this uh, mushy talk about uh, hugging one's significant other, uh, so maybe next time I'll do a gore session, um, and then we can talk about all the gory details, just Ooh, the gory details. Maybe
0: yeah, I could put together a YouTube video to go along with it, and we can have, like, visuals, oh, God. so uh, you can look at all the pustules.
1: Oh no, too much. okay too much. no 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 i mean no no, no. okay uh, i I'll, i i don't know it's uh, there's some um there's some quite uh, vivid imagery uh there's an, ah. there's an app called figure one um which you might have heard of uh which is uh, you've got to be some sort of medical professional or licensed in uh, in a country to participate i believe um but uh it allows doctors to anonymously uh and safely share case reports um there's um you could get your fell of uh, gnarly imagery there um it's um just go under infect- infectious diseases and uh, just do a combined search of infectious diseases and gynecology, <laughs> and you'll 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 see things that you that uh, you wish your eyes hadn't been invented for it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> things that will not be able to be unseen.
1: Exactly, exactly. So I know that people like to ask the question of uh, you know what's the most disgusting thing you've ever seen or ever heard of or anything, uh, and you know just like flip open. Figure one and says, just randomly look at something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> just swipe right and eventually you'll find something. Exactly. So we'll definitely do this again. You bring the Ebola, I'll bring the plague, and we can compare notes.
1: Yes. Excellent. <laughs> compare notes. Ech fascinating.
0: Before we go, do you want to tell our listeners uh, if they want to get a hold of you and learn more on how they can do that?
1: Yes. Uh... My Twitter is chrisvchafferai, and my uh, website is com. It was a pleasure talking to you. It was a pleasure
0: talking to you, too, and uh, have a great day. And you. And that does it for the last part of our interview with Chris von Schafferai. I'd like to once again thank him for sitting down and talking to me about epidemiology and all sorts of other fun stuff. I'd like to thank you for sitting, standing, or whatever your preferred position is for this uh, podcast listening experience. It'd be nice if you might hit that subscribe button or maybe even share it with a friend. If you got the time, we'd love to hear what you think of the show. Leave a little review on iTunes or your preferred podcast resource. Maybe even leave a little star review, whatever it is, it's up to you if it's your fancy. If you want to contact us, you can find us on Facebook at Bugs Blood and Bones. Go ahead and email us at bugsbloodandbones at gmail.com if you got a question or you want to know more about a particular critter or, hey, another way for a disease to make you melt from the inside out. As always, I'd like to thank the Underscore Orchestra for their amazing music. And remember, kids, keep calm. Thank
1: you ¡Gracias!